Welcome to the Real Talk with Real Women podcast, where we take an honest look at the lies we believe as women and how the truth of the gospel can set us free. Hey ladies, and welcome back to the Real Talk with Real Women podcast. I am your co-host, Mary. And I'm your other co-host, Brooke. And we're so glad that you've joined us. It's been quite a while since we have recorded an episode, and we thank you in advance for your patience. Yeah, we've had a lot going on in both of our lives. So Mary, what's been going on in your life? Well, for those of you who don't know, I'm starting my second and final year of grad school. So I'm just in the thick of it, and my brain has been mush for the past three weeks at least. Brooke, (laughs) what's going on in your life? Uh, I bought a house. So (laughs) yeah, super exciting, but that's definitely been a lot in the schedule. So thanks for your patience, ladies. Yes. We have missed you and we are excited to be back. We're so excited to be back. And today's topic is one that is a challenging topic, but a very, very important one. Um, Our topic today is lies women believe about sexuality. And so we're going to have just a really candid conversation about sex and sexuality and God's heart behind that topic. But before we jump in, You guys know we always like to start with an icebreaker. So our icebreaker we're going to start off with is, Brooke, can you tell me about your first love? I can. Yes. It was way back in second grade. Oh, wow. I started young. Yes. There was this boy in my my class, and he played basketball. Oh, yeah. And I played basketball. Wow. So that was the start of our relationship was playing basketball basketball at recess and you know that was pretty much the only point of contact we had in our relationship was basketball at recess (laughs) so the relationship surprisingly lasted for three years wow it was a long it was the second longest relationship of my life next to my husband (laughs) so fifth grade you went through fifth grade second to fifth grade and here's the deal um, I kept this a secret from my mom the whole time so mom I know you listen to these (laughs) surprise (laughs) That's a long-term relationship, Brooke. I mean, second to fifth grade, a lot happens in those years. It does, yeah. And, you know, it was a simple breakup when it ended, simple email, and I got no response from that email. Okay. So I assume we're over, but who knows? Hopefully it got delivered. We never talked anyway, so I wouldn't know the difference. (laughs) Mary, what was your first love? It's just so relatable. I mean, I feel like... We have such similar experiences with these icebreakers. Um, My first love, I waited a little bit. So I was in fifth grade. Oh, I passed the torch to you. You passed on the torch. (laughs) And it was also a boy who I, you know, went to school with. And, you know, I'm sure that we talked at school. But our relationship was mostly over AIM, Instant Messenger. Classic. Classic. And at the time, obviously, this is before any other forms of social media. So this was, you know, really the original online dating. Can I ask, what was your screen name? Um, It was either something Beach Babe related. Oh, yeah. And at the time, I lived in Georgia. <laughs> so <laughs> didn't quite make sense. Or I know at one point I had one that my old initials were MT. So it was MT Cutie. Oh, yeah. that's cute. <laughs> that's pretty cute. So it could have been either one of those. Um, out of curiosity, what was your AIM name? <laughs> you know what? You know what this is, but the audience doesn't. Uh, my, cl- <laughs> my classic screen name. I know I said I, I played basketball, but I also played softball. So 
My screen name was Softball132831. <laughs> Listen, when Brooke first told me that, she said, well, softball was taken. So I had to do softball with all the other numbers. So if it was up to her, folks, she would just be softball. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, unfortunately, it was taken already. So anyway, I remember it like it was yesterday. I was sitting at our desktop computer in the living room because that was, that was at the time where most families had, you know, they had a computer. It was in a shared space. So ours um, was in the living room, like the family room. And I've got to figure out what year this was, which wouldn't be that hard, but I'm not going to take the time. But the Olympics were on. Oh. Like we were watching the Olympics, um, my family. And I was on AIM on the computer. So once again, mom, if you're listening, I got my first boyfriend in our living room on AIM watching the Olympics. And it was very simple. Um, you know, he, we were messaging back and forth. One thing led to another. We became boyfriend and girlfriend. The thing is, is that we really didn't interact at school. Yeah. You don't do that when you You don't you date. do that. So really, like, I didn't tell any of my friends. We didn't talk to each other at school. We talked on AIM. And similar to you, well, I didn't even send an email. Things just fizzled out. So oh. I hope they ended. <laughs> <laughs> what if we're both in these relationships that we don't know about? <laughs> Young love. Young love. So strange. <laughs> um, I, I truly, on a separate note, can't even imagine what kids with social media these days are doing I, I mean we had AIM was our social media we made it work I know but like AIM you weren't on all the time like you would set an away message you that's know true. like playing basketball see you later <laughs> <laughs> so that's a different topic for a different day but um we're gonna switch gears here into the topic of lies women believe about sexuality. And so I think that both of us um, just kind of want to preface this with this topic is challenging for many people. And there does seem to be a very real heaviness to talking about sexuality, um, maybe even particularly in church cultures. It can be um, sort of taboo or just something that doesn't get talked about correctly a lot of times or um, just accurately. And so um, we kind of wanted to start out with, you know, really pondering on that question of why does sexual sin and sexuality feel like this heavy, weighty thing? And as I was contemplating this, you know, I'm thinking, is it just because we have societal and cultural norms that send us different messages about sex and sexuality? Or is it something more. And um, just for those of you who don't know, um, my job, what I do for work is I work with women who have survived sex trafficking and sexual exploitation. And so that has taught me just a lot about the really dark side of sex and sexuality. And something that's been so interesting is learning that when it comes to trauma, sexual trauma has longer lasting effects um, compared with mostly any other traumatic events in a person's life. If someone has experienced um, rape or sexual assault or just any type of sexual trauma, um, it really, really impacts a person's life uh, more than, say, a natural disaster or even combat in war. And so, you know, that really got me thinking. It, it seems like there's just something more to sexuality and there's something 
weighty there. Um, And so we're going to try and unpack that a little bit. And I think that the way that we really want to um, frame that is that what we've learned through scripture and through the book that we've been going through these last, you know, several weeks and months is that sexuality is something that's spiritual. Sex is something that is spiritually linked. Um, God designed sex and he designed sexuality. And so it can't be removed from spirituality, which can feel really weird to think of it in that way. So hopefully we'll be unpacking that as this episode goes on. Right. And Mary, you had shared a word that is common between the Trinity and sexual relationships between a husband and a wife. And I think when you sh- that that came up in the book, it's the same word. Um, was it Greek or I can't remember Hebrew? One of those. Yeah, probably Hebrew. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, probably. We're not Hebrew. scholars here, people. No, I, <laughs> I think Hebrew came before the Greek, but who knows? Um, but yeah, I thought that was a really interesting little fact that it's the same word for oneness mm-hmm. that the Trinity has. And that is used to describe relations between a husband and a wife. Mm-hmm. And so that just shows in itself like sex is has a spiritual component mm-hmm. and it is a reflection of our relationship with God and his relationship with himself. Um, so, yeah, I thought that was really interesting. And I, I want to just take a moment and just acknowledge that there are probably people listening in that have are coming from a lot of different perspectives. So I just want to acknowledge if you're listening to this and you're single, this is going to be something that you can, we're going to speak to you. If you are married, we're going to speak to you. And if you've experienced that sexual trauma that Mary was talking about earlier, we want to speak to you too. So there's, we all are welcome to this and we hope that it encourages every, every person in Mm -hmm. either any of those audiences. Yeah, absolutely. So that's a great um, way to start us off. So Um, The first lie that is in this chapter of the book is probably a lie that everyone at some point or another has related to or thought of, and that is the lie that I can't tell anyone. Really, when it comes to any aspect of sexuality in our lives is I can't tell anyone. Um, Sex and sexual sin um, can be so, just so um, shameful and can really keep people in this bondage and in darkness. Um, And so that's one thing that we want to address is, you know, the shame that is so closely attached to sex um, and sexual interactions. Um, And, you know, when we look at God's design for sex between a husband and a wife, um, it is not a shameful thing at all. It's a really beautiful and holy thing. And so first and foremost, we need to call out this lie for what it is in that it is a scheme of Satan. It really is a scheme of Satan to keep us in this shameful place where um, we don't tell anyone about either things that we've done or that have happened to us or that we think about, um, all of that is, is, you know, caught up in this live. I can't tell anyone these things. And something that I thought was so true from the book is that lie, I can't tell anyone, is so often accompanied by other lies, <laughs> more lies. So those could be things like, I can't tell anyone because I've got this. I can, you know, I can handle this struggle in my life if it's a if it's a sexual struggle. Um, I can will it away or I can just try and 
be more self-controlled next time. Um, I can be my own savior in this. Um, That's a huge lie that can come with struggle of sexual temptation or um, sexual sin. And then, you know, another companion lie is what the book called it. Um, If you are someone who has experienced, you know, unwanted sexual assault or sexual abuse, um, sexual trauma, that lie might come with, it's my fault. I can't tell anyone this because it was my fault. Um, And so both of those, you know, disregard God's love for us, you know, because God wants to be our savior with the things that we are struggling with, the sin that we're struggling with. And God also wants to redeem and he wants to make us new and make us in his image. Um, And so I think that's just important to call out that that lie of I can't tell anyone comes with so many other lies and it just becomes this tangled web. Right. Yeah. And we see so often in scripture, like God calls us out into the light and there's healing that can happen when we bring things out into the light. Like James 5, 16 says, confess your sins to one another and pray for one another that you may be healed. And I think you can talk about sin with that. You can talk about trauma with that. But it is when you when you put it on the table in a safe place and that safe place should be God's church. There is yeah. healing in that. There's support in that. There's no, ideally, there's no shame in that. And unfortunately, I think sometimes the church gets this wrong, where there is shame involved if someone brings some a struggle or a pain. Um, And so I think as our desire is that our church would be that safe place Mm -hmm. where people can find healing, and just be honest about what they're going through, Um, because that is a promise that God gives us: is that you will find healing, and you will find support if you bring it to the light. Yeah, and I think that we, those of us who are Christians and who are in the church, it's so important for us to recognize our own, like, judgments <laughs> towards right. other people because, you know, we can say, okay, the church should be the safest place to go with um, sexual sin, but are we willing to um, set the scene for that? If someone, if a friend or someone in the church comes to us and confesses a sexual sin, will we think of them differently? Mm-hmm. Because I think if we're being honest, going back to like, there's just something about sexual sin that feels different and it can be easy just to call it what it is to judge that person and to think differently of them. And, um, oh gosh, this must mean that you, you know, whatever, are wrong in X, Y, and Z ways. And maybe we don't consciously think those things, but I think it's good for us to check ourselves too. Are we extending grace? Do we want redemption for that person? Or are we just thinking we're better than them? Totally. And that really, I think, leads into this next lie that is really centered on identity because, you know, the the lie is this is who I am. Mm -hmm. And what you said there is so key. Like we have to check ourselves as a church. Are we viewing people as their sex, like whatever sexual decisions or whatever they lay on the table, um, do we view that as their identity or mm-hmm. do we view them as image bearers of God who are not defined by their sexual life? Um, and so, yeah, I think that's just really important for us to remember is that whether you need to tell yourself that your sexual identity is not your actual identity, your mm-hmm. identity is an image bearer of God. Um, or you need to tell that to yourself about others that that's not their identity either. Because I think 
our I think church um, culture can kind of start to fit into culture at large, where this concept of sexual identity being the defining factor of who you are as a person is seeping into the church. Mm-hmm. And we're starting to view people as that. Um, and so I think that's something we need to be cognizant of, that we don't fall into that trap. Yeah. And I think that this was something that stood out to me so much in the book, this idea of sexuality can so often become our primary identity in today's culture. Um, because, you know, you have, there's this idea um that, you know, you should be able to express your sexuality in whatever way you feel because that's who you are. Mm -hmm. That's literally messages that are everywhere in the world right now when it comes to um, homosexuality or just any type of, like, sexual freedom. Um, There are these messages that, yeah, this this is a part of your identity. This is who you are. You shouldn't be ashamed of that. You should just be who you are, do what you feel, and we're gonna celebrate that. And, you know, without discounting the very real struggles in those things I just mentioned, we have to get our identity priorities in order, more or less. You know, like, who who are we at the core of our being? It's like you said, Brooke, we are image bearers of God, and we belong to God, and we are a saved and redeemed people. Mm-hmm. And that's our identity. That's who we are. Our sexuality um, is is so separate from that. Um, and so I think that that can just lead us down so many, you know, dark paths by thinking this is who I am. Um, and it can cause us to just follow our feelings above all else, which we've talked about in this podcast before is a dangerous place to be, to feel like, you know, my, yeah, my feelings are truth. And what I want or what I desire in the moment I should get because that's who I am. Um, and you can believe this about so many other things besides sexuality, but it's very prominent in in the topic of sexuality. And so we just wanted to talk about how it really is such an identity issue. Our sexual part of us is not our primary identity. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And it makes me think about the story of the woman at the well, where I think she kind of fell into that trap where like, you know, she, so basically the story is, um, Jesus is at this well, this woman comes out, um, in the middle of the day to draw water, which the indication there is that it would be super hot. So no one's really going to be at the well this time. So it's kind of the safe place where she doesn't have to see anybody. And what that indicates to us is that she was probably someone who people look down on in society. And so she was probably experiencing, shame and so that's why we see this behavior in her and the reason why she was probably experiencing shame is because she had five husbands according to what Jesus um, shared about her life which means basically that she had slept with multiple people and so the the city had shamed her she had shamed herself and I think what's so beautiful about this story is that Jesus talks directly to her he restores dignity to her he gives her a new identity that is rooted in him Mm -hmm. he points her to himself as her source of true satisfaction of new life and he he basically like redeems her whole story and we see this huge transformation of her where she once was in shame and didn't want to be seen by anyone and when she experiences jesus and he offers her this new life she 
like basically runs back to the town exclaiming this new life that Jesus has given her and she is experiencing freedom from shame. And I think that is so pointed to this new identity that she now has where she's not defined by her sexual history, but she's defined by the Savior. And there's a quote from the book. Mary, could you read that quote? Yeah, there's a couple parts um, where it's talking about this passage of Scripture, and um, it says, referring to Jesus, He probed the most intimate parts of her heart and her past and led her to confess things she couldn't imagine telling anyone. Then he offered her what her heart was truly thirsting for, the living water of truth. As long as she sought satisfaction and validation in sexual relationships, she would feel shame and remain unsatisfied. But in acknowledging the truth to Jesus and opening her heart to what he offered, she would find satisfaction for her deepest unfulfilled longings and desires. And then later it says she was no longer defined by her sin, but by her Savior. But for that to happen, she had to come out of hiding. So good, man. And I think that a lot of us, I mean, I think we can all identify with this woman because the yeah. truth is that we all have sexual brokenness. It looks different in every person, mm-hmm. um, but we can all come to Jesus and he can give us that new life. He can really satisfy those deepest desires that yeah. we're longing for. Yeah, I love that. And I just love any of these, you know, passages of scripture where Jesus really enters into people who really maybe think they're damaged goods, you know, or that they're broken beyond repair. Um, I can imagine that this woman would feel like, yeah, there's no, there's no hope for her to feel whole and to feel satisfied. And Jesus offered that to her um, so freely. And that's just, it's so beautiful. I love that story. Yeah, it really is. And I think this story kind of reminds me of this concept called purity culture, Mm. which I have actually recently realized that this is what I grew up in. Um, And so I want to kind of just share a little bit about this because it kind of goes along with the lie that God's standards for sex are out of date and it goes along with identity and shame and all that. But what purity culture is, it, it basically started with our generation, like as me and Mary were growing up. It, it began with in the 1990s. So you can do the math of how old we are. <laughs> um, but it was basically the the children of Christians who had grown up um, or who were, who were teens during the beginning of the sexual revolution. Um, and so basically, like, we are the kids of that mm-hmm. era. And so there's a strong emphasis in purity culture and the, of Uh, discouraging dating and promoting virginity before marriage, often through like purity pledges, Mm -hmm. um, purity rings, purity balls. Um, I haven't heard of that one. Yeah, it's a thing. Yeah. Um, So it's it's an evangelical movement that really started in the 1990s. Um, And I, you know, like I look back on my experience of learning about sex and, you know, I wore a purity ring. Um, Me too. You did? Yeah. Yeah. And you know, funny story. I actually uh, threw away on accident my first one, <laughs> and then I I got a second one, and then I lost that oh, one. Oh no! So I went through three purity rings, <laughs> and then um, I I felt like the you know I wanted to be holy. I want to be pure, right? And so in sixth grade, you know my dating history. Oh from yeah, second yeah. to fifth grade, I was like, I need a break. <laughs> I need to surrender this to the Lord. And so the whole sixth grade year, I was like, I'm not going to date. 
Good for you, bro. But you know what? Here's the sixth deal. Sixth grade. She was already taking breaks from dating at sixth grade. Well, here's <laughs> here's the deal. I actually I was talking to a guy the whole time. I did. We did not put a title on it because that would really ruin my pledge to not date for a year. You found the loophole. I did. But here's the deal. After the year was up, like to the day, we made it official, and he broke up with me. What? Like two days later. He's like, I liked it better the other way. <laughs> oh, my gosh. Yeah, super messed up, right? <laughs> Anyways. Um, <laughs> you were just, you were already jaded from the three-year relationship. Mm-hmm. And oh, gosh, Brooke. That's painful. That's painful. Yeah. It's okay. I'm married now. It all worked out. It all worked out. <laughs> yeah. I mean, definitely thinking about purity culture, um, it is so interesting to think about that time because it was such a prominent thing in like youth group culture, which we both grew up in. Mm-hmm. Um, I definitely had a purity ring. And um, it, I mean, it was a cool thing to do in youth group. It definitely wasn't. I think later it got attention in the media. The Jonas Brothers had yeah, their purity rings, they did. which was great for girls like us. <laughs> But it definitely got made fun of a lot. And, you know, but in the church, like it was that was kind of the cool thing to do was to have the purity ring. And I think that it definitely gave you this feeling of being better than. Yes. Yeah. Like a false sense of pride. Yes. It's like even though you're secretly talking to a boy, you know what I mean? Like, right. I know. (laughs) But it's true. It's like a purity ring in my mind signified like I'm not okay. I'm going to externally show people that I'm not having sexual intercourse. That's it. However, (laughs) there's a whole lot else that's probably wouldn't be, you know, approved under purity culture that you can get away with. Because you got the ring, you're not having sexual intercourse, so everyone knows that, you're good to go, you're a good Christian. Right, right. So it, like, kind of has this false sense of pride Mm -hmm. and also a lot of shame. Yeah. Because it's, there's such pressure to, like, not mess up and to, like, maintain there's such a weird um importance and value placed on your sexual on your sexuality and your virginity specifically Mm -hmm. and that i think that kind of comes back to the identity thing of like i can't mess up i have to keep myself unbroken in Mm -hmm. this area and it misses the whole point that we are all broken and we can't keep ourselves whole we we need jesus and i think with purity culture it it really kind of makes if you were to mess up sexually before marriage, that's like unforgivable. Mm-hmm. It, it has that kind of co- concept behind it. Yeah. And I actually saw friends like walk away from the church because mm. they had broken purity. Yeah. And like that is just so sad and that's just not the gospel. And so I'm really hoping that we move away from this purity culture and towards a more gospel-centric approach to talking about sex. One that like acknowledges we're broken and God's design is ideal, but like we all fail to meet that and we need Jesus to heal and redeem that brokenness. So it really reminds me of um, Isaiah 64, 6. There's a flip here. So it talks about we have all become like one who is unclean and all our righteous deeds are like a polluted garment. We all fade like a leaf and our iniquities like the wind take us away. So really, that's just saying without Jesus, we are stained. <laughs> we yeah. are unclean. We're like a polluted garment. And then in enters Jesus where it says in Isaiah 61:10, I will greatly rejoice in the Lord. My soul shall exult in my God, for he has clothed me with the garments of salvation. 
He has covered me with the robe of righteousness, as a bridegroom decks himself like a priest with a beautiful headdress, and as a bride adorns herself with her jewels. And like, wow, what a what a flip yeah. <laughs> in identity, where it's like, before Jesus, we're broken, we cannot fix ourselves, but with Jesus, we are, have given a new identity completely. Yeah, absolutely. And I think that Brooke and I were both talking about, um, you know, how this this message of just a lot of the purity culture messages can also make it hard for, you know, if if you get married to see um, sex as a good thing, not mm-hmm. a shameful thing. And that's something that I feel like um, we could also do a better job of in the church is really, I think all of it comes back around to what is the right place um, in God's design for sex. And that is, you know, marriage between a man and a woman. And so, how, you know, but it's so hard to like turn the switch from my whole life. I've been told, don't do this. If you do this, like you're done, you're dirty, you're unredeemable to then it's supposed to be something that's God glorifying. And there's like nothing else like, there's no other sins like that. Right. Where it's like, don't do it, don't do it, don't do it. And then, okay, it's great. It's beautiful. It's holy. You're like, wait, (laughs) what? (laughs) Totally. It's hard to rethink that. It is. Yeah. And I think, you know, that's even something I've learned in the past year or so. Just like I, God created me with sex in mind. Mm-hmm. <laughs> he created marriage with sex in mind. And he said his creation was good. And so yeah. I've had to completely try to relearn that. Yeah. And it's beautiful. It's beautiful to think like, wow, okay, I can say that I am a sexual being and not be ashamed of that. Yeah. Because that's something I wasn't really taught growing up yeah and so I think that's my hope for people listening to this too is like we were created for pleasure God designed sex to be beautiful and to really reflect like what we said at the beginning to reflect his oneness Mm -hmm. in that committed unbreakable covenant Um, and so that's why God's sign is so perfect is because it is within marriage and it shows that covenant that is actually with us and God through Christ. Mm -hmm. Um, So I think we do have to get back to like not so legalistic about the do's and don'ts and what's the fine line Mm -hmm. (laughs) and get back to the holistic picture of like, it is beautiful. It is worth waiting for God's design and enjoying it when you get there. And that it's also not ultimate. Yeah. Not everyone will be married. Not everyone will get married. And so in that sense, like it feels so unfathomable in our <clears throat> culture today to think like, wow, okay, so if I if marriage is not in God's plan for me, then I should never have sex. Like that feels like the most unreasonable, restrictive thing. And that's because our culture has elevated sex, you it know, has. to to a place where like everything that we're saying, sex is this beautiful picture of the gospel. It is not the ultimate thing. Absolutely. I think that's such a good distinction. Because we even do that in the church, too. Yeah. So I apologize if I've even done that on that on this podcast. But it's really, that is so true. And I think um, it is it is a way we can worship mm-hmm. God. Um, and I think, you know, when we have that that perspective, it helps us to have a healthier engagement with it. And also it helps us really ask are we bringing our sexuality under the lordship of Christ? Mm. Because ultimately it's a lordship issue no matter. And that doesn't change whether you're single or if you're married. Right. Because here's the deal. In 
I think we've talked a lot about like pre-marriage and mm-hmm. what it looks like um, to come under God's lordship with that. But even in marriage, um, we have to come under God's lordship in that. And sometimes it is a way to serve our husbands and sometimes it's a way for our husbands to serve us. And, you know, it should be both ways. But are we still staying pure even within marriage and helping, asking God to be the Lord of that in our lives and not, yeah, just making sure that we're sticking to his design even within even if we are married. That's so good. So I wanted to, I did want to read this quote. Um, it's by an author called Joe Carter. He wrote the um, this article called the FAQs, What You Should Know About Purity Culture. And I, I wanted to read it. I know we've already talked about that, but the way he ends it, I think is really key. Um, so it says, in the past, true love waits young people, which that was a book, um, about purity. (laughs) Um, Young people have often made promises thinking, Jesus wants me to do this because it will make my life better. So bad things will not happen to me. So I will not be a disobedient Christian. Ross said, now there is an element of truth in each of those statements, but I detect a shift toward not that I do this so that my life will be better, but I choose purity for Christ's glory. I'm doing this for his sake, not my sake. I'm doing this because he deserves adoration. And the purity of my life is a way to show him that adoration. The focus comes off of me, and the focus goes to him. There is no moralism. If I choose sexual purity for the glory of Christ, that is just pure worship. And, yeah, I just thought that was such a good quote to kind of summarize what we've talked about here. It is. I love that. I love how it says it's not going to be for me. You know, the focus Mm -hmm. goes to Christ, and that's such a key part of in the Christian life, you know, dying to yourself means dying to worshiping yourself and instead worshiping Christ. And that can be displayed even in our sexuality. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. So we wanted to leave you with a fighter verse because, you know, we all need fighter verses in this area. Mm-hmm. Um, and so we're going to go back to Isaiah sixty-one ten, which talks about identity. It says, I will greatly rejoice in the Lord. My soul shall exult in my God. For he has clothed me with the garments of salvation. He has covered me with the robe of righteousness. As a bridegroom decks himself like a priest with a beautiful headdress. And as a bride adorns herself with her jewels. So I hope that that encourages you that you are clothed with garments of salvation and a robe of righteousness in Jesus. Mm-hmm. Amen. <laughs> That's beautiful. Yeah, we hope that this has been helpful, even as a starting place for further conversations. You know, I think that... I really like that, you know, we had this as a chapter and we're able to kind of normalize talking about this and just bringing some of this to the light. Um, There's so much that Brooke and I obviously are not experts on and we are by no means (laughs) perfect in this area, to say the least. Um, But we hope that this encourages you all to, um, you know, step into the light and and really um, find healing in Jesus and find wholeness in Jesus, just like he offered to the woman at the well, um, that we can rejoice in the freedom we have that he's offered us of just cleansing us, completely cleansing us. Um, So, yeah. Yeah. So next month, we're going to be talking about lies we believe about marriage. So we're looking forward to that. And we hope that you tune in next month. See you next time. Thanks for listening to the Real Talk with Real Women podcast. We'll see you next month.